0: Hi, this is Seth Mosley, and this is the Made It in Music Podcast, Show 162. Welcome to the podcast, where we bring you tools and resources to help you go full time in music and to stay in. The music business is a roller coaster ride, changing faster than any of us can pay attention to. We all need a competitive edge to stay ahead and to stay successful. What's working, what isn't, and what's coming? That's exactly what this show is all about. Back again with Full Circle Music, the Made It in Music podcast. What's up? Seth Mosley here. We're on the Made It in Music podcast, and today we've got an amazing one with none other than mega producer John Fields. I'm going to share with you a little bit more about who John Fields is, if you don't already know. But before we jump in, if you've been enjoying listening to the Made It in Music podcast, we'd love to hear your feedback. Leaving a review is one of the best ways that you can do that. Your reviews help us to continue to serve you the best that we can. So if you take just a few minutes, go to your favorite podcast platform, leave us a review. We would really love that. Really does help us to keep growing. So thanks so much to all of you who have left a review. We really do read them all and appreciate all of the feedback. So like I said today, we've got John Fields. John is an internationally recognized multi-platinum writer, producer, and mixer who's worked with some of the biggest names in the music industry, from pop acts like Jonas Brothers, Demi Lovato, Selena Gomez, Miley Cyrus, Pink, and Backstreet Boys, to rock bands like Jimmy, Jimmy World, Switchfoot, Goo Goo Dolls, and Lifehouse, to dance and electronic artists like Harmar Superstar and Cut Copy. John's also a multi-instrumentalist and successful co-writer, having written songs with Dan Wilson, Nick Jonas, Selena Gomez, and others. John will occasionally hit the road with artists he's played bass with, like Nick Jonas and The Administration, The Rembrandts, and Soul Asylum. I'm excited to find out what we're going to learn today about record producing from John Fields. Please welcome John to the Made It in Music podcast. What's up, John? What's up, Seth? How are you doing, man? How are you, my friend?
1: I'm great. Just you know, having a, just finished a great holiday weekend or it wasn't a holiday, but it was my birthday. So we went on a birthday trip and
0: had a great time. Nice. Happy birthday. Thank you. That's, that's amazing. Is, is it uh, I guess I'm probably not allowed to ask what, what birthday it is. I'll we'll just well, skip not, that.
1: I was born on 9-11. I can tell you that. So really? Yeah. It's a, but I was, you know, I was the original 9-11.
0: That's crazy.
1: Yeah, there's, <laughs> a, there's a bunch of us out there.
0: <laughs> yeah, you got you got to have like a support group for that or something. Yeah, it's definitely like
1: <laughs> a, du- a dueling, you know, emotional day.
0: Man, well, um, I'm so excited to have you on. Thanks for, for making the time. I'd love to just jump in at the top. Would you just tell us a little bit about your story and how you first started getting into recording and producing?
1: Sure. Um, back in the late 70s when I was a little tyke, um, I had, I lived in Boston. I grew up in Boston and, um, I had this awesome uncle Steve who lived in Minneapolis who was a drummer and, you know, uh, as when I was like really small, he was kind of a, a drummer in a wedding band and turned that into the, probably the first mobile DJ, uh, entertainment service, you know, possibly in the, I don't know if it's in the country or whatever, but this is like mid seventies. He was doing this mobile DJ thing, playing records at uh, weddings and parties. And I kind of grew up with this tech uncle Steve, who was a kick-ass drummer. And we, I don't know, I worshiped him basically. And I just knew that I wanted to do what he did. And at some point uh, in about late, uh, early 1980, he had a huge hit song, his own band, Lips Incorporated, Lips Inc., and the song was called Funky Town, and he wrote, produced, and was the artist with the singer Cynthia Johnson, and it became a number one song for four weeks in the summer of 1980, so this is like sixth grade for me. Just freaking out. I mean, we're talking, like, when that was number one, Paul McCartney was number two, Pink Floyd was number three, Blondie was number four, Ambrosia was number five. This is, like, the heart of, like, when music was music, when chords were chords. (laughs) Not just the four chords that they use today, but all the other ones.
0: Yeah, there's plenty of um, options out there.
1: So that was my first kind of intro to, wow, music is a thing you can do. And, of course, this is my mom's little brother. So, you know, that opened my, my mom up also to, like, having a musician kid and not sending me to law school or, you know, whatever. It wasn't, she wasn't necessarily worried about that because her little brother had really made it in music, if you will.
0: Um, <laughs> no pun uh, in intended
1: Just to bring it back home. There you go. But, uh, so, I, you know, that, that piqued my interest around there. And then I just also just loved listening and studying records. And I had this really cool mentor – in Minneapolis who just kept pushing me and pushing me, even though I was terrible at, at I, you know, I got a drum set, I got a piano, I got a guitar. It just, you know, as everyone is, you're pretty bad when it starts, and but you just got to power through it. And he would send me occasionally little gifts, like uh, in about seventh or eighth grade, he sent me a four-track cassette recorder, and that's when I started overdubbing and just going nuts on it and just trying to figure out how to do it and that's when you start taking apart records by Van Halen and Michael Jackson and Prince and just like how are they doing that like what is that keyboard sound what's that little doot doot thing that's going on you know so that really got me into the the minutia of music and also the first time you're singing your own harmonies trying to figure out like what is a harmony why does that work why doesn't that work and this is no music theory no piano lessons just totally in the basement figuring it out on your own and that's kind of how it started so as soon as I got out of high school I tried my best to move to Minneapolis to be near my uncle Steve who had a, a small recording studio and when I got here when I was 19, he just gave it to me, essentially. And, wow. And I dove in and figured it all out. And he wasn't that much of a tech. He was more of a producer, not not so much of an engineer, more of like a producer and musician. So he wasn't like, get a Neve mic pre, or, you know, it was not about compression or things that, you know, out of phase on the under snare, none of those things. This We're talking like just overdubs and like just main concepts. And, and it was, so that stuff I kind of had to figure out on my own. And that's why my early recordings are awful <laughs> as are everyone's, but no, now everyone's are probably awesome because they have presets.
0: But Hey man, you hit, you hit on a really good point. And honestly, like nowadays it should almost be required learning material for you to start out on some sort of a four track. Cassette recorder, or I don't even know what the version of that is nowadays. Like a, a little Tascam right. hard hard disk recorder or something. I mean, that was like my first thing was was exactly that. It was the boombox where you you had a tape two tape decks. It wasn't even four track. You just recorded on one side and then popped it in the other one. Yeah. And so you've got to figure out arrangement. Like nowadays, there's really no thought to arrange, or there is with, with really good producers who are up and coming, but a lot of the kids who it's like Mr. Potato Head production where you just take something from Splice, oh, that sounds yeah. cool, throw it on there, and then add 400 more tracks to it. There's no thought as to do we need these other 400 things or did we get the sound right on the first one? So I, right. I love that you hit on that. And man, it, it, if there's if there's a production course out there that, you know, would would teach kids to literally just start from the ground up like that. I think that'd be a good foundation. Well,
1: I think that that really comes from listening and learning, you know, and now the problem is the music is so grid the the current, you know, top 40 scene is just so cookie cutter and grid. I'm not, you know, it's not everything, but uh, you know, just gl- pretty much You're rarely going to get a song that slows up, slows down, speeds up, or has, you know, I mean, there's not even many songs with real drums on them at all. Or if they were, they're so processed that they don't sound like real drums. Right. You know, not that. and that's the other thing is, is the the young generation, do they even care about about creating a live rock band style arrangement of, you know, with guitars, bass, drums, and keyboards?
0: No, and I, I, I don't think so. Right. I don't think I don't think they know the difference. It's dying
1: it's... art as they call it. You know, I I always say that like when rock and roll came in in the late 50s with uh Buddy Holly and the Big Bopper and and Elvis and so forth, you know, before the, you can see like the Benny Goodman band clarinet player going, "Cat, these 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 kids, they don't know what they're doing. They don't even read music. They're just this is, this is terrible. You know, these are <laughs> really schooled musicians from the late forties and early fifties that are now getting, you know, getting older and going, what am I going to do? I, uh, yeah. you know, sax players and all that, you know, who, yeah. who play jazz. And then it's, it's not that jazz was over, but it just, when rock and roll came in, it just kind of encom- it, it engulfed. Yeah. And it, it was- lowered the bar, to be honest, of musician mm. entry level mm. musician into like being pro. Yeah. Which I think was good for me. I I, I definitely took advantage of that low bar.
0: So <laughs> Hey, well I, I'm personally thankful for that too. I'm I'm very much not like the lowest grade I got in high school on any of my classes was music theory. Yeah. And I wish I knew more of it. Me but too. You know, I don't. I don't know what your process is. We can it's talk not. about that. <laughs> <laughs> it's whatever sounds good, right? Well, I, I tried
1: honestly to learn uh, reading in high school, and it just did not click. It was like a like a strange foreign language to me. It never. I can yeah. I can read through it like every boy deserves fudge. Yeah. Slowly, I can recognize the note, but I was never going to be able to sight read, and that. That that actually stopped me from following up on that education because I just wasn't fast at it. But I was fast at figuring out the chords to songs, yeah. and you know, and all the background vocal parts and so forth. So that, I don't know if they have anything to do with each other, but yeah. So I skipped out on the whole music reading thing, and of course, I was one of those guys saying ah, people who read music they don't have feel they don't you know what but that is so wrong yeah that is and it's as i started making records with people and meeting people you know in my 20s and i realized that the some of the best musicians were fully schooled yeah fully understood the whole gamut of reading and arrangement and you know just
0: well we talk we talk about that a ton i love that you brought that point up that i think there's this misconception that goes on around about like Nashville or LA or, you know, really any music industry town that when they hear stuff that comes out on the radio and it's four chords, they associate that with musical stupidity or it's too simple. But, but you're right. Most of these musicians, like they can do that in their sleep. They can do all that stuff in their sleep. That's why you, that's why we call them because show up and you play the song for them once; they chart it. Yep. Go in there, and it it's, it feels well,
1: great. They're but... they're hired to make magic, as I say. Yeah. And it you know because the structures are generally the same, but really, what's going to make a, a cool record is going to be the singer, the yeah. song, and hopefully some magical
0: music parts. But
1: yeah, and you know, eight out of ten drum tracks are kind of down the
0: same pipe. Yep. So. Yep. Yeah, you can copy paste. So, you talked about moving to Minneapolis. It, it sounds like your uncle had had a big thing to do with that, which smart decision on your part. Um so once you got there, how did you go about starting to kind of build your your business as a record producer? So th- that that was
1: just had a crappy studio in a panelled what looked like a CPA's office <laughs> and I cut a hole in the in the wall and put a window in from the hardware store myself and put a microphone on the other side and I just started asking friends to come over and record and a lot of it was my own music at that point because I didn't have many friends because I had just moved from it from Boston to Minneapolis and at that point my uncle had kind of checked out and started raising a family so he wasn't really hanging out with me that much on a daily basis so I found friends and uh, another thing that was happening at that time was I was playing in a cover band at night, and that was a huge, huge. Just another one. Just put that on the list of what you should be doing to to school yourself on music. Playing Is a cover playing band, a cover band on any instrument, and you're you're singing backies. You're learning classics and standards. You're learning how a dance floor, what fills a dance floor, what doesn't. Um so that was happening on my weekends and then occasionally i would meet you know young young people my age that were in bands and i just started going out and seeing bands down in minneapolis and meeting people my age and that turned into inviting them over to my studio for a free session free hang and that just Then I started a band. That band got gigs. You meet other bands at those gigs. You ask those guys, come on out to the studio. Let's, you know, it's that you're just scraping, trying to get anything going. Yeah. And also I had business. I think I was 10 bucks an hour back then to just record at my studio. So I was doing reggae bands. I was doing, this is early nineties. And, and as, as these bands were were rolling through, I was getting better at fixing their, or just, just fixing their arrangements on the fly, like, a, you know, doing three songs a day. Uh, the whole record's done in three days, you know? Yeah. Because that's just what the budget was. And so I learned how to do that on, just on the fly. And I guess...
0: That's... Man, can I can I jump in right there because yeah. that, that, you, you hit on something that I think a lot of people struggle with. Up and coming record producers, when you're starting out, it's really hard to kind of find your worth. Like, what do you what do you charge to to make a record? I mean, mm-hmm. it sounded like you just jumped in and said, "Hey, I'm ten bucks an hour." How did you go about kind of <laughs> trying to trying to figure that out?
1: I'm, I mean, that would be that's funny. Like back then, early '90s, ten bucks an hour was kind of. I don't know, double minimum wage. It's like five for me and five for the studio or something. I don't know. It just it seemed like a good round number. Okay. Uh, but you know, at the end of the day, it's a hundred bucks a day, pretty much, you know, and, and that, you know, for a crappy recording studio, it seemed the, the nice ones were going for a grand a day, I'm sure. Yeah. And of course I'm doing everything. I'm the engineer, I'm the producer, I'm the janitor, I'm, Playing all the guitars that they don't play and just, I mean, some, some, some pretty all across the board projects. That's the thing. Like just, and then my uncle occasionally would have some of his friends and say, you're going to do this voiceover project, or you're going to do this uh, demo for, for my friend who wants to be a country singer or something. You know, I would just do it. So that yeah. that's the other thing is just, just say yes, always yeah. at the beginning. Yeah. And I mean, even now it's like, try to say yes as much as possible. Cause, cause yes turns into so many tribute, just, it, it just rivers go off Yeah, from yeah. a yes. And yeah. a no is like, okay, nothing happens. And then they never call you again. Mm. So, um, but charging, it really, it wasn't really about the money. It was just kind of like, you had to charge something. And I also didn't charge everybody. There was, there was, you know, friends would just be free. Yeah. So. Um,
0: so were you pretty much able to like go full time in producing right when you jumped into it or how, how long did it take you to calling build up it to producing?
1: That? I, I wouldn't call it producing. I just, just, you know. <laughs> well, my money was being made by, by gigging, playing cover band gigs. So that, that kind of covered the nut and, uh, this, the daytime studio was just, you know, it's, it slowly progressed to that couple years, three, four, five years later uh, at some point, a couple years into that, my uncle Steve bought a building in outside of Minneapolis and we built a real studio in 1992 and that was the first time, I mean I had to build it too with the, the carpenters so I learned about studio construction and and then we were picking gear to put into it and it was all kind of the budget stuff DBX, Alesis this was we had an Otari twenty four track that was like the the pride and joy at that point, yeah. And he had some microphones left over from his days, and we used those. But most of it was just what everyone else was using, Audio Technica. You know, if you're lucky, you'd get something like an AKG four fourteen. That was, I think, my my nicest mic. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I do love them. But, and that turned into a real studio. Then, of course, the, the rates kind of went up a little bit because it looked nicer and they had nice wood floors and so forth. And just, I was getting better as a producer, engineer, and mixer. So we just word of mouth and then gigs started coming. And then we started a record label. That's the other thing. We started sign in bands, rock bands. Wow. And I would just, I'm the in house producer. So I made the records and none of them really were were huge. There were some great, great records made, but, uh, that was kind of how it started for me. And then out of town people started calling and Chicago is only six, seven hours from here driving. So a a band from Chicago came up in 98 called dovetail joint. And they, I made a record, a, a one song one day record with them called level on the inside and they got signed to Columbia Records. Mm. Aware, Columbia Records it was, and and that was my first time, really, like, wow, this band got signed. It's because of the demo that we made. The demo actually turned out to be the record we ended up making the entire record together and we mixed it with Jack Joseph Puig in LA, who was my choice. They they said like, who do you want to mix? And I said, what do you mean? I thought, I thought I mixed and they're like, no, you can pick anyone you want. And I said, Whoa, Jack Joseph <laughs> Puig for sure. Cause he, you know, he was, he was, he was one of my favorites because of his two jellyfish records that came out in 1990 and 92, which yeah. are just art pieces of hmm. incredible production, writing, arranging, and mixing. So I worked with him. That's the first time I went to ocean way Studios in LA, and I got my first little flavor of, whoa, this is cool. This is, you know, this was a big focus right console with all the Fairchilds, and I'd never even seen a Fairchild. Yeah. So because Minneapolis, unlike Nashville, Minneapolis didn't have that many great studios. There was like two. There was Paisley Park, um and there's another place called, like, Metro Studios. And that was about it for – for. and even then, it, they didn't have Fairchild's and Neve modules and stuff like that. It was still – you know, it's Minneapolis. So – Yeah. But, so you uh, ended up – So the LA up... entry was – that's the first time. And I watched Jack mix. And I just – I started sponging everything. Hmm. So that turned into – you know, going back home and taking those tricks. And ooh, I, I didn't even know about bus compression, Seth. Wow. Until 1998. No, nobody ever said to me, put a compressor on the mix. Crazy. That's,
0: that's amazing.
1: Uh, so it's, it's in, in the things then up. I bought an Allen Smart stereo compressor and my whole sound changed. So, that's
0: amazing. It's,
1: it's about <laughs> like just being able to get into a situation where you can watch someone else do it, and that's one thing I would say about. I, I do. I, I do say this a lot. Like producers, do not collaborate that often with each other. Hmm. Just it, at least in my style, producer. You know, it's like where it's like the band comes in, you make the record. It's not like all of a sudden I'm. You know, me and Eric Valentine are going to work together on the same project and I'm going to see how he does it and he's going to see how I do it. We don't watch each other. We don't watch anyone. We just Mm. do it our way. So it's other, you know, it's unfortunately, you don't get, there's not a lot of opportunity to watch other people do it unless, and I didn't come up the, you know, the intern way or assisting. So I didn't get to see like someone be a pro in front of me until I got to LA and watched people mix Mike Shipley and Jack, Puig were the two that really opened my eyes to like how pros do
0: it. That's, that's amazing. Yeah. I I can definitely echo your sentiments there. I think when I moved to Nashville and started working with, you know, I think the first mixer I worked with here was a guy named Reed Shippen and he just, you know, just letting me generous enough to let me sit, sit behind him and just watch what he's doing. And like, just stuff like you mentioned, you know, for, for people that don't know what, what you're talking about or maybe getting lost in the technical weeds, like on the output of a Pro Tools or Logic session, the output bus is like what everything funnels through. And you, if you put a compressor on it, it just makes it all glue together. So it's those little tricks. And I, I, you know, like you said, saw Reed doing that with his SSL. And um, so when you... Like was that? Would you consider that your big break? If that's even a, a good way to put it, like working with that record on Columbia, were you like kind of off to the races at that it was, point? It, or what it was... started
1: right right before that. I had there was another. There's a local group called Tina and the B Side Movement that I produced in '97 on Sire Records. But and 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 JJP actually mixed that one too. That was the first one in '97. Um, wasn't that successful? But it was the first time I got. You know, paid, and we actually went to a really awesome studio called Pachyderm, which is out in the sticks outside of Minneapolis. It's a great studio where it's famous because Nirvana made their second or in utero there. Yeah. So, um, but it was also a really nice place. It was a residential, so it had a house that you could stay in and a studio, and you could just like camp out for a couple weeks and make a record. Did that and came back. But uh, the break, there really wasn't a break, it just was a slow. Drip of projects that came in, and honestly, it was a really ripe time for the major label rock business. It was it was the late '90s. There was rock stations in every town, radio stations that would play records. Now there's zero. They all closed and became other formats. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, you you know it. I mean, it was like that. Just that late. It was that post. Grunge, late you know, bands are getting signed. It wasn't grid music. There was plenty of electronic music out there, but just playing guitars was cool and singing and this is back in days I just it was great and and so I happened to line up right in that. Not that I was Mr. Rock guy or anything. I actually came more from an & b background originally just at, at when I had started out, I was trying to be Ellie and Babyface or Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. Because my uncle kind of his music skewed towards like R and B and funk, so I was all about Stevie Wonder, Marvin Gaye, you know, Shaka Khan, Prince, Marvin, you know, and and just trying to get that going. But then I, when I met kids my age, they were playing rock, hmm. and and I didn't even like ro- that much rock growing up. To be honest, I was it just wasn't in my blood. I was more into Steely Dan and Michael McDonald and hmm. uh little just courtier music that was a little more complex and yeah. Todd Rundgren and utopia. Those are my favorite bands. And, and mm. so, but when I met these younger guys, my age, that's when I started realizing, Oh, ACDC, this is something we need to study. Um, you know, and the bands that were getting signed and were working with me ended up, and that, it, that's the other thing is you just, you end up getting in with a band and they're a rock band that has a drop D and Next thing you know, another band like that calls you because you did that record and then you do that record and then it just brings you down this path and maybe that wasn't the path that you wanted to or thought you were going to go down. But that's what happened to me is Dovetail Joint, rock. Uh, I made a record called Evan and Jaren. It was kind of a rock pop record and just other people started calling in that same genre.
0: Hmm.
1: So I had I kind of dropped the funk to be honest, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just went with what, what came. And that's, that's at, at some point in, in the late nineties, I started traveling to LA a lot and got, a, got an apartment there. Cause I wanted to participate in that scene more, but I didn't want to move like my entire, cause I had an awesome studio in Minneapolis. I, so I just started going out to LA and that really, i met a lot of people out there and they kept saying, you need to be here. You need to be here. I got a manager in LA and he's like, you need to be here. So I finally decided in 2002 to move out to LA for real Hmm. and closed up my shop here in Minneapolis and just moved it all out to LA. And honestly, within that first month or two, some of the greatest things in my career ever happened. So I'm glad that I did it.
0: Yeah, man, let talk about that. And I do, and I I do want to, talk about the, the importance of proximity in a, in a music career to where the action is. But I, I also want to put a bookmark in what you had said. It, it sounded like you kind of came up with this one identity of who you were musically of having this kind of funk Steely Dan um, influence, but then you were willing to just kind of check it out the window. And so many times as musicians, I see people coming up and they, they're very kind of have a fixed mindset about who they are, what they do but really to make it in music, you've kind of, like you said, you got to say yes to everything. And sometimes what becomes your calling card is something that you'd have no idea of.
1: So that's the thing I have plenty of friends, you know, who are, who work in post-production sound right now that were in my band and never thought in a million years, they'd be doing that commercial voiceover work, mixing 5.1 television commercials, mixing television shows. These are guys that never would think that 20 years ago, that's what I'm going to be doing. But those are the jobs that are available for professionals. You know, it's so hard to make it as a producer engineer at this point that you got to open your mind to where, what else is out there. So for me, I, I always just wanted to do this. I, I, for me, it's about music in the studio is the most fun part of this job and, and kind of working out the puzzle that is a song. So I don't know where I'm going with this other than just, I followed, you know, you, Oh, I see. I remember you, you, you don't get to pick what comes your way. That's the thing. Yeah. It's, it's, it's yeah. so it, it's not that I tossed out my, my funk and steely Dan. It's just, it's always there. It's still there. It's just you didn't get to put it into this record because they they these guys don't want any keyboards on their album, you know. Mm. But I want to put keyboards on them. I get my occasional mellotron on there, this and that. But so that's the things when the records when, when the offers come your way and you take them, you you just don't know what's going to happen, and that's that's kind of how you end up where you are. That's the thing. You just have to let it happen. And hopefully you have someone to help you. Like in my case, I have the, I've had the same manager for 22 years, Frank wow. McDonough, and he's incredible. And I talk to him every day and we, he listens to the mixes and we talk about the music and we listen to the demos that people send. It's, it's not just a guy, you know, doing the invoicing and stuff. It's, it's, it's a musical shoulder to lean on. Hmm. And that's really been important also. To me that's along awesome the way, and he helps pick the projects hmm. with me so
0: yeah so good so and it sounded like he was pretty instrumental in n- nudging you to move out to LA
1: so he managed Jack Joseph Puig at that time oh, in 1997 okay. and 98 so i met him i think through that and uh we just kept in touch and he knew there was something there so, but he wasn't like, I want to manage you right now. It was, it was this little dance that we had for a couple of years. And finally I got enough projects and I said, please, please, please. I was doing my own negotiating at that point And just, I just, I'm terrible at that. Yeah. And finally he, he stepped in and said, I'm, uh, I'm in. So, and, and that's great too. And it's not like all offers and all work comes through him. As you know, uh, most of your work, I mean, you know, early on it comes just through word of mouth. It's like somebody calls you, Hey man, you want to do this? And you say, yes. But now it's, you know, there's people, obviously I don't know most of the people that I work with until I meet them the first time, you know, and that's, that comes through. I don't know if that's word of mouth or just, you know, your reputation as to the records that you've done, I think is at this point kind of how it happens, but I still do work with the same people a lot over and over and over based on, you know nothing to do with do they like switchfoot or something it's just yeah there are people that appreciate my ear
0: yeah exactly and i mean would you say that just the proximity effect was a big uh key oh, factor yeah. just like so when you to la, LA
1: that, the thing about moving to la was it's 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 where the record labels are and new york was it was also in new york and you you could have moved there as well but I I gambled on LA and I think I was right because all the recording studios in New York City closed and a lot of the labels moved to West Coast. So being there means that uh, when someone calls and says, you know, there's a new band. They just got signed to A&M Records or, or whatever it is. And, you know, can you meet today? And, you know, when you live in Minneapolis, the answer is no, I cannot. Mm. And you might be the right guy to do that record, but you can't take that meeting. So now that you live in LA, you can take that meeting mm. and you can, you can run into people also that turn into other things. So for me, that was important. And that first month that I got there, I met a manager, uh, on a kind of a cold meeting. It was, a, he had, he was managing an artist named James Rinald from Canada who was signed, and he needed someone to produce and mix two or three songs. And I met with, with James and his manager, John Lachey, and did, ended up getting that gig and doing that project over the next couple of weeks. And the manager was really impressed. And he also managed Switchfoot. Mm. And he said, hey, I got this other band from San Diego. You should meet them. And we, I'd love to make, you know, hopefully we can make a record together. And we did within a month that first month of moving to LA. So there that's the proximity thing is like I would never have met that manager had I not moved to LA and been living there. And that means I would never have made the switchfoot record which turned into so much great stuff in my life. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, be, you know, move, you know now I Nashville obviously is is the heartbeat one of the two heartbeats. I mean, LA and Nashville and London probably is what I'd say now. Yeah. Not Man, to discount Minneapolis, because that's where I live now. But at this point, I don't need to prove myself as much anymore. It's kind of like the work kind of comes regardless. I'm I'm pretty sure i – I'm not sure if I'd be getting more work if I lived in L.A. or Nashville. Maybe so. I'm, I'm sure there'd be more people that you meet and so forth. But I'm kind of happy with where it's at right now.
0: Yeah, well, it's, it's seasons. You know, when people are starting out, like you said, it's say yes to everything. I, I like to – you know, I, I can't coin, claim that I coined this term, but to be able to increase the surface area of your luck yeah. basically, the exposure to opportunity and to what you know is going to come your way. So, yeah, it's it's a we always tell that to people if, if you if you want this to be your thing, and especially if you're young and single and don't have a family, like you yeah. have no reason not to <laughs> absolutely.
1: Not to. So, just yeah, just just dive in and and just just get in there, but I wasn't like a, some sort of expert networker or anything. I'm actually pretty shy with new people. And, and so, but I don't know, just some great things happen. And, and that just shows you that even if you're shy, you know, it's like still things can, can, you know, you'll, you'll run into someone that changes your life. And, you know, when you look back, like who, who are the people that change your life? It's pretty crazy to think that one thing turned yeah. into this entire you know, that just, just river of work.
0: Yeah. So, that, that, that one, that one meeting chance meeting yeah. went the switch. Well, it manager. did. That
1: one chance meeting did change my life, uh, you know, in terms of really having like, cause I always, I was like, I want to like, I, I, I loved Brendan O'Brien's work yeah, and Mitchell Froom and Albie Galuton and you know, producers that I just worshipped Todd Rundgren I was like, how do they they get their jobs? How does it work? And, you know, how do you get that uh, Stone Temple Pilots record? Like, you know, just – and it was never going to – but I watched Brendan, you know, come up, and it was like it just was this, like, little etching away at it. Yeah. And then, you know, it ended up happening for me too. Just, you know, I just – I've always dreamed, like, well, how is it going to happen? And so it was – it's still happening to be honest that, you know, you're never really satisfied with the career. you just always want more, but yeah,
0: man, I I'd love to just from a fan perspective and I know it was a long time ago. You've probably answered these same questions ages ago, but, um, the beautiful letdown record, in my opinion, is definitely in the top best records of all time of any genre. Like, I just think it's so such a masterpiece. So yeah, again, amazing work on that. Um, can you yeah, talk yeah, about? Yeah. Can you talk about if nothing more than just to satisfy my curiosity? What What was the, that process like? Was it Was it one of those moments where you kind of knew like this is going to be a massive thing, or was it kind of just like any other record and like no, put it it's out? It's not and like it, any, just any other record. I
1: met the guys at Sir Studios in LA. That was uh, they were playing showcases. They were doing. They were signed to a Nashville label at the time. But their LA manager, who was new for them, said we're going to do showcases for for the big LA, LA LA record labels. So they played at SIR a couple nights, and they lived in San Diego, which is about a two hour drive from LA. And they, at this point, they're early twenties; they're young. It's like I think it was their fourth, what well, was to be their fourth album, and so he says, "Come on down to this SIR." Showcase, they're gonna play, you know, a a 15-20 minute set for some record execs. And I happen to know a couple of the guys there. I think uh Tony Berg was at that that showcase. And um they basically played, and I I didn't, they just played a four-song set. And afterwards I met them and the manager's like, This is John, this is the guy I was telling you about. And they're like, Oh, so uh we're gonna start on Monday, right? And I said, Really? (laughs) <laughs> great i mean absolutely i'm ready to go i mean it's like okay cool well you just got to find a studio And i mean it was like that they just put their trust in their manager and i don't know I, I, there wasn't much at that point all they could look at for me was i had done andrew wk i get wet album um and i think a semi-sonic album that wasn't that huge and Nothing like It wasn't like, we're going to go get the guy who did. It was just, they just took a shot, to be honest. And I think, I, you know, I don't know if it was just I was available or what, but the manager liked me, and we just booked. Uh, they said we have a 12-day opening before we go on tour coming up in April. This was 2002. So I booked a studio called Sage and Sound in Hollywood. It was a long, skinny studio with not that big of a drum sound. It was pretty much of a dry jazz room, like pretty, pretty small, I'd say. Mm. So the room mics on the drums didn't have a lot of vibe to them, but it was available. It was cheap. And we went in there, they had an API console and uh, he sent me demos and those were You to Move, Meant to Live, More Than Fine. You know, you know the list. Mm. And at that point, John, the singer, had been working on I think like a Roland 8 tracky box thing that was hard to export tracks off of it wasn't a computer system yet it was yeah, like a yeah. self-standing box but we figured out a way to export some of the cool sound effects that he had worked on so a lot of what you hear that sounds like super psychedelic uh you know Sonic effects was from his demos. Wow. So on songs like beautiful letdown or this is your life. um, We pulled a lot of stuff off their demos and I would jam it into pro tools and, you know, place it. And, you know, this, at this point, I don't even know if the tempo has worked at that point, but this was 2002. I, I, at that point, was kinda of hybrid. I used to mix on consoles but recorded in Pro Tools, so I hadn't gone fully in the box yet. And the band was intent on recording bass and drums to analog tape. So nice. we went to a studio that had that and we cut most of that record, bass and drums, to two inch. And except for the two songs that were not cut to two inch were Meant to Live and Dare You to Move, because the, we did the, the first song we cut was Meant to Live, and we did an A-B comparison. Let's do tape and let's do direct Pro Tools and A-B them and see which sounds better. And by the time we were done doing the digital version of the drums on Meant to Live, I was like, why are we going to redo this? Let's keep this. So we did. But for yeah. the rest of the songs, we ended up liking the tape sound. So we would use, you know, I would take, uh, we would make a, a map of the song with a vocal and a guitar just a minimal arrangement and i would print it 3 or 4 times on one reel of 2-inch tape and then we would cut three passes of drums and bass and then we would dump all that in and then i would edit from that and then it would from then on it was all in the box but all of it was made at that recording studio in 11 days it was one song per day and they then left on tour and we didn't do daring to move at that point because the A&R guy, that had, and, and uh, during this time, they had signed to Columbia Records, to And the A&R guy said, I want to redo that song, Dairy to Move, which was on their previous record. Um, and so we booked, uh, like, a, I don't know, two or three weeks later, we booked one day of studio time at NRG Studio A, which is one of my favorite recording drum rooms ever. Yeah. And cut that song there in one day and used some of the stuff from the, like, some of the keyboard effects from the earlier record, but all of it was uh, otherwise it was all new. Mm. And then uh, I mixed the whole record at Larrabee studio myself on an SSL. And we finished on probably, it was probably about May 31st of that year and passed in all the mixes. And at that point, the A&R guy said, Hey, let's get uh, Tom Lord Algie to do a couple mixes. So Tom did, this is your life and dare you to move JJP mixed the beautiful letdown. Uh, that other amazing song, oh, more than fine. And there's yeah. like a ballad on there. I can't remember the name of it.
0: Was that That's the amazing. fire song? Uh, fire,
1: fire. Yeah. 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 And those three, and, and I, I did those with Jack over at his place at uh, Oceanway, ocean way and that, so, and then, and the original version of the album was, was that. And then when meant to live became the single, they sent us to Chris Lord algae and he did that song. So there's some versions of the record with my mix and some with his. His has a lot more treble, so you, you'll know. <laughs> <laughs> so, so both, you know, it's a great mix.
0: But people who are listening on Spotify or whatever today, are they, I assume they're just hearing the CLA version?
1: Probably. It's, it, yeah. But the original, like, print, printing of the CDs were, were my mix of that song. But the rest of the record, so it's probably like six outside mixes and six of mine is what I guess. Yeah. And that record came out later that year. I, you know, I had a great time working with them. At that point, it was uh, John and Tim, the brothers, and Jerome on keyboards and Chad on drums. And really very, I don't think there was any outside musicians, maybe like a string player or two. And uh, that was it. And I just kind of went on with my... Life and started making other records and working and working, living in LA. Other great things were coming my way. And I don't know, about a year later I get a call from my manager. He's like, Hey, that switchfoot record you did, it's selling thirty-five thousand a week. I said, like, What does that mean? He's like, It's it's top twenty or whatever. And the single is top ten on rock radio. I was like, This is crazy. So I really wasn't watching. Mm-hmm. And uh it just they, it just was great timing for them, 2002, 2003. And Meant to Live kind of got on all the rock stations. And their tours got bigger, and they just it took off. And I'm really, really proud of that record. And soon after, we they were like, hey, let's make the next one. So I remember meeting them at Starstruck Studio in Nashville hmm. uh, somewhere around 2004. And they're like, we have one day off. Can we meet at a studio? So I booked Starstruck which I don't know if you've been there but it's a fantastic Yeah,
0: we we room. actually have a little office there.
1: Oh, that big yep. room with the glass?
0: No, uh, it's not the fog. It's 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 a little riding room we've got up there.
1: Oh yeah. No, I, I, that that room was an amazing drum, drum Yeah, it's a good room. studio.
0: It's a good studio. We cut
1: the song Stars there. Oh wow. Just that one song. Doo dit and did it and do dit. It's a great and, riff. Uh, and that, that that was kind of the beginning of the second record and then That's a whole other story, but that's where uh, the nothing is sound started around then. But
0: that's it really changed my life because
1: soon after that, when Switchfoot and when Dairy to Move came out and kind of took over, uh, a lot of people started calling and saying, I want the guy that worked on that song. And that was not what I thought. I thought it was going to be... Coldplay and Radiohead. And it turned out it was Clay Aiken and the Backstreet Boys and <laughs> records, just just it, pop, pop records. I mean, it was people who loved that song. And, and so, but I just, I thought I was going to go down this, you know, more experimental rock path. And it turned out it turned into this pop world. And that kind of led me to working in LA with a lot of these kind of singers. Where it wasn 't a band, it was just and then I would become the band, or I would hire the band with my my pals, my musician pals, and make a song that sounds like a band, but Clay Aiken is singing yeah, yeah, and that That's... opened up a whole new world for me too because I really hadn 't done a lot of that before yeah
0: yeah well man the 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 genre diversity of it all is 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 really impressive, and um, when what would you say you know I, I know there's a lot of conventional wisdom that says you really want to like get in and specialize in something like that, have that thing you're good at. It sounds like in your case, that really wasn't part of your journey. Uh, If somebody's coming up now as a new producer writer, I mean, how do you kind of advise them if they're talking about like finding their lane and like, where, where do I. So, so I
1: think things are so different now. Like when I was coming up, it wasn't about writing a song and getting someone to sing it and get sing on your track. And like, it, it was less, I mean, yes, publishing was huge, but I wasn't writing songs with Switchfoot. It just, it, you didn't do that. Like, Hey, you got the new, uh, radio record. Okay. Well, what are we going to co-write? No, it doesn't happen. Bands write their own songs. That's why the Beatles are the Beatles. Yeah. They don't write with the producer. That's not what happens. Now it does because it's, it, the business has changed, but back then it was not normal. Hmm. And, to, you know, to, to be co-writing. And it was actually kind of frowned upon by, you know, the general scene was like, you don't co-write with the bands that the, you know, they have their own publishing deal. These, their songs. I mean, uh, that never happened for me uh until, yeah. And the temperature started changing in about 2005, six, seven, around there. And that's when I met the Disney people. And that's kind of changed, changed. My thought process on that, where they were like, we need you to write. We want you to write. Do you have any songs for Selena Hmm. Gomez? And I'd say, well, uh, yeah. You know, and I'd go quick, write one. (laughs) um, You know, because at that point you realize I am having these opportunities to write. And I had always written in my bands and everything, but it wasn't my focus. So how do you focus on something that you're good at? I mean, now I feel like the thing is you write songs and you produce them and you... Try to get a superstar to sing them, I and mean, I think that's the the vibe now um, and as a producer, that is you know you sure it's, it's, so because it's not like you're going to get a lot of jobs where it's like okay we've got you got the new album, and these twelve songs are done now you produce them. It's just so rare these days that that happens. I'm sure it does, but so um how to focus you know I, all I could say now is just know how to uh, you know one thing. I I tell younger producer engineers, just just learn how to cut vocals, learn how to work with vocalists, learn how to sing yourself. If you don't Mm -hmm. sing, good luck to you. (laughs) Because it's like if you really don't know how to sing or at least even if you don't sound great, you should be able to deliver a vocal and understand why. And how to change someone's, you know, how to suggest a change to someone's delivery to make it either more believable or just less lame or whatever, you know, and and then how to, and I'm not talking about like, okay, we'll put like doubles on the chorus and pan them on the outside. I just mean like, like literally ends of words, falling off words, scooping up, understanding all like, look, put, take you know, sing your own vocal put it in Melodyne and look at it Mm -hmm. and look what's happening. It's like, this goes up, that goes down, like follow it, move it around, get the best singer you can in to sing and try to like work with just the most talented people you can to really understand how it works. But that to me, that's the, 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 I don't know, the, the the real deal is when you like the vocal production. It's like all the loops and the splice. It's just like it doesn't matter at all. None of yeah. that matters. It's yeah. singing is what matters. Yep. And you know, there's so much music out there where it doesn't matter. You know, my daughter loves a lot of songs by by bands like hundred gecks. And it's like it's it's like video games kind of super distorted, super processed, three octaves higher than you're actually singing, you know, yeah. on purpose. It's fun. But it's not like singing. Yeah. And, um, at the end yeah. of the day, that, that is an important process to learn how to, to, to do that. And, you know, all the drum sounds and the samples, and just, yes, it's all out there. Everyone can do that. That's the easy part to me. It's the working with musicians and working with singers. And the only way to really get good at it is to do it a lot.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, 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 you know, just even looking through like your all music credits, I mean, you had a lot of stuff on there back from 1992 before that beautiful letdown record. Like oh, yeah. I'm still scrolling. Like it's. We're talking
1: every day since, since I moved here in 1988 or whatever I was yeah. in the studio and yeah. I mean, that's the ones that are released Seth.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, a lot of them are
1: just like local demo things and you know, so but really, that's that's what it is. I mean, if you have a studio, I'd be working in it. You know, if 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 you want to do this, I would. Uh, you know, have a studio in your basement or whatever it is, and just invite people over and just make songs or do them long distance or whatever. But just do it every day, yeah, all day long. And I guarantee you, you'll get good.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's that's such good advice. One thing we say at, at Full Circle Music is that you know, dare to suck. That's like our mantra. Just dare mm-hmm. to suck would you say the same goes when you're working with artists and studio musicians and singers? Like how how do you kind of create that safe space for them to taking chances? I mean,
1: I'm fast at working. So I would say like, I like it to go fast. I think the artists I work with like that. It goes fast. I'm not spending a lot of time comparing microphones and a being snare drums. And, you know, I just have things that work and I like to work fast. Not to say that I don't like experimentation, but on the musical side, that's where it should happen. But just take take a shot, like go higher this time, you know, just try something different that you would never try and just there's a lot of people that, that kind of like, okay, now we have the dirty guitars. Now we do the cleans. Now we do the high ones with the dotted eighth note delay. Now we do, you know, it's like, there's certain producers that do that. And like, then they have all their bases covered and it's like, and we need two doubled on the outside just in case. Okay. Now the acoustics. All right. Now the tambourine, now the shaker, now the loops, now the keyboards that go, you know, it's just like, (laughs) I'm guilty too, to be honest. I mean, I, you know, but, but, At some, you know, as I got older and older, I just kind of like whittled it down to like, what does this song need? Let's do it right now. That's it. Mm. I don't take extra takes. I don't take 80 vocal takes. I take as few vocal takes as necessary. That could be two, that could be four, and punch in the second verse twice, and that's it. There's no like, and that's the other thing. I don't like to do it later, comping, and even on on guitars, I don't like to open it later and fix later. I want to do it right now, sitting next to the artist, I comp every vocal with the artist. Yeah. They're sitting there singing at the mic and I play back the verse that we just did. How's that? Well, what about that line? And I literally am dragging new options in and we're playing it back and there's reverb on it and there's compression and it sounds like a record. And we're making that decision right there. Not to say that we might not fix it the next day or whatever, but the idea is let's do it together. Let's both be happy. I'd never like to work on something and then spring it on them. Yeah, like oh, this is so just terrible. Man,
0: you're 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 making me feel a lot better about my process because it's I, it I do a lot of the same things and obviously not to the level of what you're doing, but like it's my process is fast and furious. I think I I don't know how some people kind of hole up for like a month and then they work on it and then they kick out a mix and then right here, here's Have you
1: your heard stories of guys like that like Mutt Lang? who yeah you know two years to make photograph by Def Leppard whatever. But, and, and it is amazing. That's the thing. <laughs> and, and it's not overproduced. It's just perfect. But I've just found I, my, my temperament is as I can't, I can't hang that long. Yeah. You know, doing this. And I certainly don't want to do it later. I yeah. just want this to be done right yeah. now. And, and so I don't know if it's impatience or just, I, I want to hear the record now. I don't want yeah. to like do it later.
0: Yeah. Well, that's, dude, I'm, I'm exactly the same but on, way so on all
1: instruments. I mean, yeah, just on everything, just, just you know, just again, right. just as few, I, you know, I don't take safety takes. Let's just yeah. get one more just in case I just don't.
0: Yeah. Just do Just do it good. And don't worry about it. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Um, do you think it's worth it to learn new DAWs, plugins, software instruments, or should you kind of just stick to what you know and be more efficient? Like what, what's your view on that?
1: I've been saying I was going to learn Ableton for the last six months and I never opened it, but I (laughs) I have it. So, you know, for me, my suggestion is get really familiar with one and just get great at it and just stick with it. I think other people, if you have the, the mentality where you can actually be great at Pro Tools and also know Ableton or Logic, do it. Because I know people that tell me that they switched over from Pro Tools over to Logic, I'm like it's so great for writing, it's so great. I say, well, what about editing a vocal, you know? Or and they're now they're saying it's great, but I I don't think I could do it. I've, I'm so fast at Pro Tools at this point with the quick keys and just knowing where everything is that I just it's like it's kind of my reading music, if you will. It's I, I'm not sure that I could ever switch to anything else regardless of the benefits because yeah how fast and familiar i
0: am with the program it's a great answer well man there's we've we've talked a lot about switchfoot i mean there is so much other just huge records amazing records from ben rector and parachute and more more switchfoot and uh, 10th Avenue North Soul Asylum all all kinds of stuff that we could we could totally dive into all day long but do it if you want i, I know i know you're a busy busy man so what i would love to just do is you know encourage people to go go to John's all, all music page and just, just you know just just do a deep dive listen to all the records the 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 breadth and width of the genres that he's working in is just inspiring. So so go check out his all music page. We'll, we'll, we'll make a link in the uh, in the show notes for this. Before we jump into our lightning round and before we do our deep dive, which I do want to do our deep dive on working on remote sessions. I know even before this whole COVID pandemic, you were already doing it. Mm-hmm. So I want to I uh, touch on that in our deep dive. And if people are interested in that, they can go to madeitmusic.com and uh, register for the deep dives. Um, but before we close out, is there a piece of advice that you would like to give to people who are listening to this who want to do this for a living?
1: Is there a piece of advice? Well, just do it every day. You know, you might have a day job or you have, might have to have other responsibilities and all that, but you need to do it every day to get good.
0: Yeah. Yes. It's good
1: advice. Repetition.
0: Yep, get the reps in. Um, All right, well, let's jump into our lightning round. Are you ready? Yeah, let's do it. All right, top three things in your recording rig that you could not live without.
1: 1176 compressor. um, Could not live without. Juno 60 synth. And... Oh, recording rig, not music rig. Okay. No,
0: that's that's good. That's okay. counts. That counts. And then uh,
1: Ludwig Black Beauty
0: Snare. Awesome. Well said. Um, what's your favorite slash most used app on your phone? Doesn't have to be music related. What do I use the most on my phone? Hmm. I got to look at it for one second. Let's see. <laughs> what's in the front? Uh, podcasts awesome that's probably mine too yeah what what item is always in your fridge oat milk creamer for coffee is it the oatly kind yep i love that it's kind of my,
1: a new thing because it used to be the silk
0: yeah my wife is from sweden and so i i discovered that stuff like seven years ago it's awesome yeah, really it's good great. if people are lactose intolerant out there um what was the first album you bought and why did you buy it
1: I was given records, that's the thing, because my my uncle gave me just a ton of stuff. But it was probably Beatles, and just because they're the greatest band of all time, and you want to learn how to make records, you want to learn how to write songs, you want to learn how to be a band. Beatles.
0: Yeah, (laughs) there it is. And lastly, what advice would you give your younger self? Talk less. (laughs) Listen more, talk less. Maybe. Yeah. All right fair enough well John this has been an absolute blast we will link to um, you know your socials your all music page um, is there anything that you're working on that you you want to share with people before we I mean sign
1: this, up? I don't know how timely this is that's the thing but you know been working on some really cool stuff with Ben Rector lately remotely and we can get into that in your remote session in the deep dive yeah deep that's dive. awesome but um, just uh, really stoked on the new Ben material.
0: That's awesome. Well, we'll, we'll make sure, um, you know, regardless of when this comes out, that there's, there's definitely links to all of that. So, uh, John, seriously appreciate you being here with us on the Made It Music Podcast today. Thanks, Seth.